welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. The past week has been something to behold on C-SPAN. Today, I'd like to chat a bit about what happened last week and what we can expect moving forward into the next two years with this current Congress. And I've invited Jennifer Hayes-Clark to join me today to talk about everything. You may remember Jennifer, who has been on the show before, to also chat about Congress. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Houston. She received her doctorate in political science from Indiana University and her bachelor's degree in political science and math from the University of Mississippi. Her areas of specialization include American legislative institutions, state politics, and public policy, and her work examines how institutions and the political environment shape policymaking and representation. So Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Heather. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk with you about this. So gosh, a lot has happened. Last week, everyone was glued to C-SPAN or other media. Everyone was watching the speaker vote over and over and over 15 times. Right. I wonder if maybe we should start today's conversation really about like partisanship in Congress and Mm -hmm. what kind of role parties play in Congress. So a lot of our listeners may not quite understand why it even matters to have a majority So Jennifer, I know you teach Mm -hmm. a class on Congress. Can you tell everybody a little bit about how parties and partisanship affects things that happen in the House and things that happen in the Senate? Like, how does that how does that affect decision making? Well, you're right. The two parties, Democrats and Republicans, play an enormous role uh, in the policymaking process in both the House and the Senate. And to a certain extent, in different ways in the two chambers, as we saw it play out in the U.S. House, the chambers are organized uh, based around political parties. And so initially what happens is that the two caucuses, or in the case of the Republicans, they're considered the conference, they get together and they meet and they determine who's going to be the leaders. Of course, in the case of the Speaker of the House, that actually comes before the entire chamber. And as we saw, all the members have a vote over the Speaker of the House. Um, And thinking about the role of parties, however, and why parties matter so much in policymaking, um, we just need to think about the types of policies that have been produced. Um, over time. When the Democrats control, they have certain policy priorities. And what happens is that the leaders can, in effect, shape what legislation gets introduced, gets through committees, and actually makes it to the floor for a vote. And so they have an enormous power uh, in policymaking and in the agenda setting. So what issues actually make it um, through those chambers and ultimately go to the White House? And the speaker has a lot of power, or at least could. What are some of the powers of the speaker? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And a lot of this is dictated by the rules of the game, the procedures that they actually vote on um, at the beginning of a new session. And so it does vary somewhat over time how powerful the speaker is. Um, Over time, though, as the two parties have become more ideological uh, polarized from one another, we've actually seen the speaker grow in his or her power. 
And so what that means is that the rank and file members of the majority party have been more willing to defer to their leader and grant them more what's called institutional prerogatives or powers that they have. And so we see things like um, control over what's known as the rules committee, which once legislation is voted out of committees, it goes through the rules committee where they actually determine the terms of debate uh, when that bill gets to the floor. Can members offer amendments, for example, or is it a straight up or down vote? Um, who can speak? How long can they talk? Uh, what are basically the rules of determining, you know, how they're going to consider that bill? And that can have immense power in terms of what provisions are actually in that legislation. And so over time, we've seen there's been the strengthening uh, of the power of the speaker. However, now that's all kind of called into question, uh, you know, with the Freedom Caucus and their, I guess, the concessions that they were able to, to negotiate um, to get their support. And so, you know, there's been a great deal of focus on those particular rules and what Kevin McCarthy was willing to give up to those members to get their support. It's just wild to me uh, to watch Kevin McCarthy go back again and again and again to try to get the, the support from people within his own party. You said the Freedom Caucus. Who are these people and what exactly do they want? <laughs> well, they're the more conservative wing within the Republican Party. That's a really good question, though. We used to talk about during the Obama era, the Tea Party, right? And so they would oftentimes kind of make trouble for some of the Republican leaders who are more moderate. But now we have the Freedom Caucus. And it wasn't necessarily all members of the Freedom Caucus who objected and opposed Kevin McCarthy um, during the speaker vote. But there were enough. There were 21 um, initially. And you know, some of them were more dug in than others. And, you know, there were some who had like specific things, um, aims that they hoped to achieve. And so Chip Roy of Texas was one of those members that basically wanted more transparency and openness in the legislative process. And so you had some like that. And then there were some who just seemed to like the chaos, right? So, Lauren Boebert would be an example, Matt Gates, and they just seemed to thrive during this, um, this conflict. And it wasn't clear because they hadn't explicitly stated what they wanted from McCarthy. So, okay, we have this position, you know, Republicans come back into control of the House. They have more members than Democrats have. So they have more seats there at the table. So they get to select this person who will lead the chamber they also, by the way, for our listeners, they get the best offices on Capitol Hill as well. Uh, but they get all of these perks by being the majority party, and they're supposed to select a leader. Kevin McCarthy seemed to be, I mean, honestly, even before they gained control, I thought Kevin McCarthy would be the speaker. And that's because he had a history of being, like having a position of power, even though he was in the minority party at the time. What was it? I mean, well, yes, we have this Freedom Caucus. They're not really sure what they wanted. Some of them knew, some of them didn't. But mm -hmm. why do you think he struggled so much getting these people together to give him those 218 votes? Is it just the caucus? Is there something? 
something else about him. I think in his case, there was a lack of trust. Um, I think just in previous dealings, many of the members of the Freedom Caucus just felt like they couldn't trust him. And, you know, there was also this calculus that really they're beholden to their voters and to their donors. And, you know, we have this idea, at least in political science, this idea of uh, the party brand name, like the reputation is really important to the members, the reputation of their party, and that all the members have this sort of linked fate. And so creating chaos like this would necessarily hurt the Republican Party and the views of their voters. However, this kind of calls into question this notion that everybody's kind of on the same team and that they kind of have the same calculus in terms of, you know, this linked fate. We want our party to present well, to look good to the voters, uh, especially when they can simply say, well, you know, our voters want a more conservative process or they want more conservative policies than what Kevin McCarthy is going to promote uh, in his tenure as with the speakership, for example. And so it really does drive home how within each of the parties, there actually is a fair amount of difference in terms of ideology. Even within the Democrats, you see that. Of course, they were unified um, behind Hakeem Jeffries. But, you know, we did see some cracks in that, of course, as um, Biden was trying to get through some of his key policies and some of the squad, the more liberal members, for example, um, raised some of the objections. But but yeah, I think it just kind of drives home that there is this difference within especially the majority party, though. And it's something that Kevin McCarthy, it's not going to go away uh, during the 118th Congress. He's going to persistently have to face the Freedom Caucus and a great deal of dissent among many of the members who maybe haven't bought into what he's proposing. As this was playing out, I was thinking about former speakers, people like John Boehner. Mm -hmm. I was drawing parallels to John Boehner and mm -hmm. what he dealt with with the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. uh, you could even make parallels to Ryan, Paul mm -hmm. Ryan. And if I'm not mistaken, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't McCarthy try to be speaker when Boehner left? Or like he was going to be like the next and he lost? I believe so. He's been angling for it for a while. And that's oftentimes what we see with uh, party leadership. There's sort of this progression. And so maybe you start out at the whip position and then move up to leader and then eventually hope to ascend to the speakership, for example. Um, certainly there's some element of seniority and who gets priority and these types of positions though. But, but yeah, it's interesting that you raised this parallel with Boehner because, I mean, given some of the concessions that McCarthy has made to the Freedom Caucus and the rules package, if you've had a chance to look at that, I mean, it does put them in a precarious position. One of the big things that the Freedom uh, Caucus and many of these dissenters wanted was a change in the motion to vacate the chair process um, for removing the speaker 
right? And so back when Boehner was actually the speaker, they were actually able to sort of force him out using this, this process because um, the rules were much more lenient in terms of bringing that motion. Any member could bring that motion and it's privileged. So then it would come up for a vote, even if the leadership rejected that or they opposed that, they couldn't do anything about it. And then, of course, once the Democrats won control of the House, they changed that and said that the party caucus had to approve this process. And so, you know, it sort of protects the speaker and gives less power to any individual member. But then with the rules change, now it's back to the way it was under Speaker Boehner, which ultimately kind of thwarted him and it didn't come to a vote because he chose to resign instead. But it's something that it kind of eases that um, that requirement for the members and anyone in his caucus who is displeased with what he's doing, they can actually raise that motion. And if we look at the last week, I mean, the number of times they voted, there's obviously people who were displeased. And so I would think if I were him, I would just be expecting at any moment Mm -hmm. throughout this process for the next two years, somebody's going to make these motions. Exactly. Yeah. And so he comes into the 118th Congress a much in a much weaker position um, in terms of bargaining. And it's going to be, he's going to have to make concessions uh, on various policy priorities of the Republican Party to these members that aren't quite sold on him, even still, even though they ultimately came around and supported him. They can always use that as a tool, as a threat to kind of keep him in line and show him that you know, they they don't have to just go along with what the Republican leadership wants. Yeah. And so for the listeners, if, if you're thinking about the next two years and legislation and all of that, I mean, obviously, the Republicans mm-hmm. have ideas about what types of priorities that they're going to have and, and what they'd like to do to kind of push back on some of Biden's priorities. But mm-hmm. to get things out of the House, they have to have 218 votes. And so if right. they couldn't get 218 to vote for their speaker. I mean, one big question I have is how are they going to get 218 Mm -hmm. for any of the other pieces of like all the other legislation they would like to see? I'm just afraid we're going to go into do nothing Congress. I mean, well, some people would argue, you know, depending on what area you're looking at, we've had do nothing Congresses or Mm -hmm. lame duck Mm -hmm. kind of Congresses in a sense. But if, if you are not united within your party, I'm afraid things just aren't going to get done. And then are we going to see multiple speakers? You know, that really speaks to why leadership, party leadership is so important. It's so difficult, just generally speaking, to get 218, to get a majority of legislators to agree on anything. They all have different personal opinions on policies, different constituent pressures, special interests, donors, you know, they're trying to please many different groups. And it can be a challenge just getting them to agree on anything. And certainly, I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't really bode well for him. I think the fact that he struggled so much initially just to get the support of his caucus, his fellow Republicans, um, that they would support him and his leadership bid. And then if you think of some of the other rules that were enacted that, 
you know, one of the things that Chip Roy was talking about was this issue of Congress increasingly has what's known as omnibus bills, which basically are funding bills that throw in the kitchen sink. And so you have, you know, funding for defense, for education, for all these different priorities. And instead of voting on just each individual issue separately, increasingly what they've done is bundled them into one big, enormous bill about many different um, types of issues. What that does, though, is it actually has empowered the speaker to be able to sort of log roll or engage in horse trading, where a member who maybe opposes this program, you can get them to support the bill by giving them funding for something else, right? And so you just kind of do that and it ramps up and you can build that coalition, right, of 218. Now, if you break it down, though, and you have basically you have a requirement that you can only deal with one single issue every time you're voting, it's going to make it very challenging to pass any of any of the bills. Essentially, it's going to take longer. It's going to be more drawn out. And of course, you have the Freedom Caucus, many conservatives who feel like government spending is out of control as it is, right? Uh, and so it's going to be very challenging, I think, under these sets of rules to actually build that winning coalition and get things through. And that's not even speaking to once it passes the House, what's going to happen in the Senate. And if it were to go to President Biden, Right. Um, because we're in an era of split and divided party control of government, which oftentimes makes it a little challenging to get a lot of big pieces of legislation passed. I wonder if we're going to enter back into that, like that era during Obama where Congress kept trying to overturn Obamacare and yet Obama was president. And I kept thinking, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, he's yes. never going to do this. It is his exactly. signature piece of legislation. Yeah. Um, so then it's more about like position taking, which I think actually is probably going to be a big part of what we see in the House. Because they're really talking about focusing on investigations, right? Um, so investigating the IRS, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and what they see as abuses of these agencies. Um, but then also, as you mentioned, rolling back many of the programs and policies that the Democrats had enacted. And so they already voted to roll back the IRS funding um, that was passed under the Inflation Reduction Act by the Democrats. They gave um, around $80 billion to hire like around 87,000 new agents. And they basically rolled that back already. And so uh, I would expect to see a lot of that and also just to see a lot of investigations, right? So more talk about the administration, the Biden administration, um, perhaps Hunter Biden will come up again as well. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of that, though, I think, as the parties have polarized, we've seen the use of um, the legislature's oversight uh, role, where they oversee what the executive branch is doing. That's one of their one of their key powers in the system of checks and balances. Um, but increasingly, it's been used in a more partisan fashion, I think. And so I would expect to see some of that 
with the house as well. And, you know, they, they believe it's going to play well with their constituents and perhaps that's the case. So for those who are driving around, if you're listening in and you're like, who is Heather talking to today? Hi, y'all. This is Red, White, and Confused. I'm Heather Evans, and I'm chatting with Jennifer Clark, who is a professor at the University of Houston. We're talking about Congress, the speaker, all of that show that happened last week, and it is continuing this week because they've passed the rules package. So I want to shift gears for just a moment. For those who have been paying attention this week on Monday, Uh, Part of the rules changes that were passed by the House includes some gutting of the Ethics Committee, which, uh, by the way, there's a new member in Congress named George Santos. You may have heard of him. He is in New York. He said, quote, this was fantastic. So, Jennifer, what is the story with George Santos? Why is he making the news and why is it kind of bizarre (laughs) or maybe it's normal for him to say that cutting things about the ethics committee would be fantastic. Right. So George Santos is a Republican, uh, newly elected member, uh, I believe 34 years old and um, was elected in Long Island. uh, So he's out of New York. And it came out after his election that he had actually lied about several key pieces of his biography. And it turns out that actually he's wanted for some criminal activity in, is it Brazil that he was wanted, I believe? And so there have been just several questions kind of surrounding George Santos and his identity, who he is, and Increasingly, there have also been questions about funding, right? And so I I believe I just saw recently, maybe today, that the Federal Elections um, Commission is actually looking into him um, because several of the expenditures he reported, they all seem to come just below the threshold where you have to then give an itemized receipt. So he had all of these Uber uh, Uber charges and expenditures for like $199.99 and flights. And it just raised a lot of questions, I think. Um, but also there have been um, pressures, I think, placed on Speaker McCarthy um, to actually launch an ethics investigation into George Santos, um, given all of these questions, the fact that he lied about uh, a lot of his background. And so perhaps that's why he said he was so thrilled, though, at the rules and how they gutted the ethics committee, because he would likely be a prime target, given all that we know right now. He definitely would. Um, He lied about a lot. I have a list. So he lied about where he went to high school, where he went to college. He said that he worked on Wall Street. By the way, he didn't. He said he founded an animal charity. By the way, he didn't. He said that one of the weird ones, Jennifer, is that he said he has a husband. Mm -hmm. Like he put that as part of his campaign. Um, But there's no no record of that. Um, he said that his he mom said he was Jewish, right? He was Jewish. Yes. And then when they pushed him on that, then he said that he was Jew in quotes ish. Very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that his mom was in a tower during 9-11. There's no that I don't believe she was. 
-hmm. He said that his grandmother was a Holocaust victim. She wasn't. He said that he had employees who were Pulse nightclub victims. He did not. I mean, it goes on and on and on. What we know is he ran and he won. What does this say about, I mean, just campaigning in general? I mean, this kind of, this depresses me as someone who watches local campaigns. So what do you think this says about campaigning for Congress and partisanship? Does it say anything or does it, does it really speak to news reporting or God, I don't know. Like what, what is all this? I'm just yeah, I mean, those are good questions. I mean, it is surprising. I mean, given just how much information uh, we have access to, right, that there wasn't proper vetting. So first of all, there's the question of vetting, right? And so vetting, not just of the opponent, like the Democrats vetting George Santos, but also Republicans, right? Somehow he was able to pull the wool over everybody's eyes, right? Uh, And so I think, you know, the parties as gatekeepers, that's one question. Uh, It seems like maybe they weren't necessarily doing their job and thoroughly researching those who filed to run under the party label. Um, you know, there has been a gutting, I guess, of local media. And so that's another concern because oftentimes they would be the ones to kind of step in and really keep a pulse on the local elections. And that didn't seem to happen. I guess there was one newspaper that kind of raised some questions, but then it never caught the attention of the national media. And so, you know, from the voting perspective, though, I think, We know as political scientists that oftentimes the voters do just kind of key into party identity and they don't necessarily know the individuals on the ballot, especially in cases where you have so many different elections that you're voting on nationally, as well as state level and local elections. And so I think, you know, it's definitely like a failure within the system. And and I agree, it is depressing that nobody kind of raised this. And now I will say, though, that many of the voters in the district who supported him and some even contributed some money to his campaign, they're outraged. Like they just can't believe this was happening and they feel lied to and betrayed. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with any of these ethics investigations into him. I would be shocked if he were to run and win again. And I hope that this is a cautionary tale to all local political parties, as well as Mm -hmm. reasons that we should be investing in media, local, good quality reporting, newspaper reporters. There was the one paper you mentioned that did did Mm -hmm. raise questions about this and and they continuously did. And and I I believe, and I forget the name of that paper, but They said at one point, because it's a conservative, more of a conservative leaning newspaper, Mm -hmm. that they would not endorse him. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I believe they endorsed the opponent. Um, But yeah, and I think more broadly, though, it speaks to this concern about our lack of awareness of money and where it's coming from. Right. I mean, And people have mentioned that he loaned his campaign $700,000 and we have no idea where that came from, you know, especially I think more recently, the the FEC has been sort of gutted and its power. And so we don't oftentimes see a lot of oversight in terms of 
campaign finance. And so maybe this will be a wake up call that we need to have more reforms. We need to strengthen that arm of government that can actually kind of go through and see where these candidates, where are their resources coming from, right? And make that public, make sure everybody knows. That would be great. And I did notice in the speaker votes that um, most Republicans were not sitting with him. And so he was kind of off by himself. So I don't think the next two years are going to be kind for him if he makes it two years. Um, given yeah. all the potential violations of ethics. So, literally. yeah, I mean, that's the question, you know, whether he will be pressured. Of course, I mean, Kevin McCarthy had the incentive to seat him and not raise any issues because he smartly said early on that he was going to support McCarthy as speaker. And as we saw, McCarthy needed every vote that he could get. And so that's why they decided not to eject him. But I mean, it really does make the party look bad, though, having this person there that we don't really know who he is, who George Santos is. No, we don't. Moving forward, the next two years are going to be very interesting to watch with Congress, with this particular speaker vote happening 15 times and McCarthy finally getting it. And now we also have candidates like George Santos winning some, you know, again, if we could just give more resources to local news, if we could start vetting candidates better, I'm I'm pro all of that. <laughs> so thank you, Jennifer, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Heather. Absolutely. Well, y'all, this has been fun. Um, I will talk with all of you next week. We'll have another show for Red, White, and Confused. If you missed any piece of this program today, you can catch up anytime by podcast, and you can also listen in locally. So the show is broadcast on 90.7 at WEHC, and it also comes on all over Southwest Virginia, multiple stations now, even over in Wise and also in Clintwood and St. Paul. So I hope that you'll tune in, but if you missed any piece of it, you can catch up by podcast. We also have a Facebook page. Feel free to like it, share it. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with one of your friends, and I will talk to y'all next week. Have a good week. Thank you.